Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This wonderful recording of one of the Gilded Age's most familiar popular songs was made in 1906 by a group known as the Haydn Quartet, which formed in the mid-1890s, and they were made famous by that new invention, the phonograph. And that song brings all the feeling of a summer day in the Gilded Age and a sense of idyllic escape from life's realities back to us today. It's common to think of parts of the city of New York during the Gilded Age as long avenues lined with European-styled mansions, overblown palaces, all accented with the grand new temples to art and culture, such as the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the New York Public Library. Our minds take us to Fifth and Madison Avenues filled with elegantly dressed people showing off their best and latest Paris fashions. Well, the truth is, of course, it really wasn't quite like that at all. There was a tremendous dichotomy between the haves, who had too much, and the have-nots, who faced great inequality. Instead of a sparkling city of gleaming marble, Manhattan overall, from mid-century onward, was a construction zone filled with deeply dug dirt pits, scaffolds, buildings in progress wherever you looked, copious dust from horses kicked up by carriages all of that could get lodged in your hair your clothes and your lungs and just for a moment let's imagine walking down a congested madison avenue on a hot august day encumbered with a corset petticoats and a hat or a vest starched collar and jacket 
Throughout most of the 19th century, New York lay below today's 42nd Street and was extremely congested. New sections of the city as it grew northward were filled with the soot from the new rail engines running up Park Avenue and factories lining the riverbanks. It was hard to get much fresh air if you couldn't escape the city and just toddle off to your Newport cottage. Perhaps the greatest resources of relief to the sweltering city-bound New Yorkers in the Gilded Age were the great parks that began to take shape in the years following the Civil War. Central Park, for sure, along with Riverside Park along the Hudson, and over in Brooklyn, Prospect Park all became part of the growing cityscape. And for those with enough money for the train ride, it was the escape to the seaside paradise of fantasy, Coney Island, that restored weary souls. Today's show takes us to those not always so lazy, but often hazy days of Gilded Age summers, and a look at how most real New Yorkers played and cooled off. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Coney Island, that strip of land on the eastern edge of Brooklyn facing out into the Atlantic, has always had its share of curiosities and memorable sights. And in the summer of 1895, it was certainly true. Evolving from a fashionable seaside resort to a place of escape for fun, fantasy, and perhaps even romance, Coney Island seemed the farthest world from the clogged city. And yet, it was still the nearest accessible place to which many 19th century New Yorkers could escape to breathe some bracing salt air, eat some oysters, and, for a little bit anyway, forget the realities of their daily lives back in the steaming streets of the city. Coney Island was to grow in the early years of the 20th century to encompass three great amusement parks, but the very first of all opened on July 4th, 1895. Later replaced by the more famous and extensive Luna Park, it was called Sea Lion Park, and yes, there were some actual sea lions there, but there were some early rides called the Water Chute and the Flip Flap Railway. Sea Lion Park was also the very first enclosed amusement park in North America. Back in the city, New Yorkers found space and air in the great Central Park, but it took some work to make it the space that could accommodate any and all that wished to find a bit of escape among its paths, grand walks, trees, and pavilions. My guest today, writer Esther Crane, shares a deep look at both Central Park and Coney Island, along with some other ways the Gilded Age played in the city in the good old summertime. Esther Crane is a native New Yorker, and she is a writer and editor. She is the author of The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910, published in 2016, and New York City in 3D in The Gilded Age, published in 2014. In 2008, she launched Ephemeral New York, a website that chronicles the city's past. 
Ephemeral New York has been featured in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, and other publications. She speaks regularly on topics related to New York City history and conducts walking tours that explore New York's hidden pockets and little-known stories. Last year, Esther and I recorded the show Invisible Magicians, Domestic Servants in Gilded Age New York, Episode 10, which took a look at the lives and the reality of domestic servants in the Gilded Age, which I invite you to listen to if you haven't yet. It's been one of my most popular and downloaded shows so far. Esther, I am so honored to have you back on The Gilded Gentleman and so happy to have you here at the table with me. Welcome back. Thank you, Carl. I am thrilled to be here. I'm so glad you're here for another discussion. I love it. I love it. So I'd really like to start with a look at probably the greatest public open space that New York ever created, Central Park, which was such a refuge and a respite, certainly during the heat of the summer, but really all year round in a lot of ways for Gilded Age New Yorkers, and it still certainly is today. So in your book, The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910, you open the chapter on recreation with this description of a beautiful May day at the height of the Gilded Age in 1890 in Central Park. So Esther, could you really take us there and tell us what it would have been like if we just parachuted into that very moment in Central Park right now? Yeah, let me read exactly what I wrote. Um, And this will really paint a picture of what the park was like on that May day and other summer days, spring and summer days in Central Park. Central Park was literally alive with pleasure seekers yesterday. There were dozens of May Day parties that brought out the children and the soft spring air, the warm sunshine, and the budding trees proved sufficiently attractive to ensure the presence of countless older people. The bridal paths were filled with men and women on horseback. The drives were crowded with gay carriages, and the promenades were so thickly peopled that pedestrianism was a wearsome labor. The only people who did not take a marked interest in the riding parade were the children. The youngsters were too busy with their own entertainment to heed anything else. Gaudy maypoles dotted the sward of Central Park in all directions, and dozens of May Queens reigned coyly in white dresses, long veils, and crowns of spring flowers. Games of baseball were indulged in by the boys on the grass and picking the yellow dandelions were the babies who had a merry time rolling around. The boats on the lakes were liberally patronized and the menagerie was crowded, the monkey cage as usual, holding the place of honor in the attractions of the little ones. Everywhere was abundant evidence of the popularity of opening day in the park. I love that. Now, that's from a newspaper, right? That's a New York Times, 1890. What I find so fascinating is it's almost a review of the park, the way you do the review of a book or a a theater, right? I mean, the the newspapers were fascinated by writing about the park, right? I, I should also explain that when they say opening day, it certainly wasn't the park opening. The park was open year round. It was opening day for the carriage parade which uh, wealthy people and those aspiring to wealth uh, participated in. It started at Columbus Circle and went all the way through the park. But the the newspaper article isn't really focused on that. It's really focused on the average child and the older people, as they called them, which I guess is everyone else. 
I love that excerpt also because it does really describe a range of people and also activities. You know, if you sort of wandered over to Central Park and I don't live very far from the park, you could get, with the exception of the carriages, of course, and the maypoles, right? You could get a pretty similar description today, right? Oh, exactly. It's really perfect for our age. It just shows you that the enjoyment that New Yorkers get from the park, that hasn't changed. The park itself uh, has gone through different um, versions but the enjoyment we get is the same. And we're going to put all of that in context, but let's go back a little bit in time before there was a Central Park. What choices would really regular everyday New Yorkers actually have to get away from all this congestion in the city, the heat, the dirt, and, and really try to get cooler and get some some fresh air? What what could you do? Well, you know, there really there really wasn't much. The idea of a park um, and sort of the neighborhood parks that are all throughout the city today, those didn't really exist. There were squares. Washington Square was um, a military parade ground at that time. I suppose you could go in there and, you know, there would be trees and it would be, you know, a little less urban um, for those four or seven acres. There was the Battery, which was sort of the traditional place where people would walk and take in the cool breezes coming off New York Harbor. Uh, by the middle of the 19th century, though, the Battery was a little bit sketchy. Um, it wasn't as quite as grand as it was um, even a generation earlier. There were cemeteries. It sounds kind of strange to us, but Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn was a popular picnic ground. The paths were beautiful and landscaped and families would go and they would enjoy the sort of bucolic nature of the cemetery. And time stands still in a cemetery. So it was a very peaceful place. One of the things that I think is interesting when you go back to those early years of the 19th century, and the rest of Manhattan that was not developed was a kind of difficult area geographically, right? It was still forested. It was swampy. It was oh, rocky. Yeah. You just couldn't go north and expect a beautiful field, right? I mean, that I had mean, to be developed. I think Fifth Avenue was just ended in in mud after 23rd Street or 42nd Street, even still into the 1860s. It just wasn't, there wasn't even really roads that could take you to places. Um, if you were very lucky enough to have a carriage and somebody to drive the carriage, you could go up the Bloomingdale Road uh, and go up to where Grant's tomb is today, take in the beautiful views of the park and the, the Palisades across the river and come back. But most people didn't have that. You know, they didn't have the money for that. They also didn't have the leisure time. We really forget that people in the Gilded Age, uh, especially in the earlier decades of the Gilded Age, they still worked every day of the week except for Sunday. And getting places was very difficult. It wasn't until the elevated trains came in when people could actually get to Central Park and enjoy it from the lower parts of the city. So it seems pretty clear that uh, the city government realized fairly early on that they had to do something to create some green space that the population, the rapidly growing population of New York could take advantage of. And so how just did Central Park start? How did the notion of this big, enormous park start? What was the original idea for it? Well, William Cullen Bryant, who was the poet and also the publisher of the uh, New York Evening Post in the 1840s, was sort of considered the first person who proposed the idea. He ran an article in his newspaper calling for the city to create this great green space. Part of it was because the city was becoming industrialized. There was a lot of congestion downtown. People needed that that sense of a place to rest and relax. But there's also this idea that 
we were losing our morals because uh, we were not close to nature. And they actually blamed crime and juvenile delinquency on the fact that New York City really had no natural reserves for people to enjoy. The city was just too crowded, too urbanized. And there was this idea that if we created a beautiful park and we made it sort of a replica of nature, that we would end all of that, um, you know, the crime, the the morally unsavory side of New York City, which was uh, becoming a big concern at the era. Boy, if it were only that easy, right? Right, It's exactly. a great idea. So just to give listeners a sort of time frame here, when did construction of Central Park really start? And when did it finish? Because it took a while, right? Right. They first proposed an, an area that's known as Jones Woods on um, the east side. There were some wealthy landowners there who pretty much quickly nixed that idea. And then they settled on Central Park. Um, Central Park, because of the rock outcroppings, and it was very, there was parts that were very marshy, was never good for farmland. There were people who lived there, but by 1857, the city had uh, evicted them all and park construction began. Now, it seems that despite this idea that, that Central Park was going to be a place for all New Yorkers, it really wasn't in its early years after it opened. Is that correct? And can you illuminate that a little bit? Why, why not? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because the idea of the park also came from very elite New Yorkers who they felt that Manhattan was becoming more populated with sort of unsavory characters. So they called for a place in New York City that would be enclosed and policed where they could go riding and walking and feel a sense of safety and be among among their class. So it sounds like a lot of that concept for the park was created by elite New Yorkers for elite New Yorkers, but they had money to transport themselves there and they had time to go. But that wasn't really the reality for a lot of other New Yorkers, right? Was that a problem in actually spending time in the park? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I haven't seen any accounts where people in the lower city, poorer people, working class people felt that they were being left out of the park. It just wasn't created for them. There were also lots of rules that Olmsted and Vox instituted in the park. There was no ball playing. There was no picnicking. There was no singing. These were all things that immigrant groups, particularly German immigrants, which was probably the largest contingent of immigrants in New York City at the time, really reveled in. And if they couldn't do it in Central Park, there was no reason for them to be there. Now, when did all this start to change? How did the park become more egalitarian? Uh, You could actually credit this with Tammany Hall. When Boss Tweed took the city charter in 1870, uh, he was always mindful of making sure that he got the vote of working class people and poorer people. He sort of uh, became very liberal with the rules. So they, they, they cut the rule about ball playing. They allowed people to have picnics. One of the biggest changes was that instead of concerts that could only be held on Saturday, uh, when most working people couldn't visit them, the concerts were now held on Sundays, and they became uh, hugely popular. Uh, the band shells were extremely popular with uh, more regular people who would want to come up on Sunday, take the new elevated trains, which could whisk them to the park you know, for just a nickel in 20 minutes, and then spend the day exploring and enjoying the green space. I think we all underestimate the role that transportation and the growing role of transportation made during the Gilded Age, because that really opened up the city. Because until you had those elevated rail trains, 
it was expensive and it took a long time yeah, to it, go from, right? It could take half a day and a carriage ride to get to Central Park if you were living on, say, Bleecker Street. So what would be the point? You know, once you got there, you would maybe be there for an hour and you would have to turn around again. Now, by the 1880s, you actually note this in, in your book, that Central Park was called the lungs of the city. What did you mean by that? I like to think that that's just, you know, it's where people were able to breathe and they were able to just relax, sort of this idea of rest and relaxation. There was no pressures in the park. You were able to wander the pedestrian paths, or if you were lucky enough to have a carriage, the carriage roads and the bridle path. These were all separated at the time by design, whereas in the regular streets, there was no separation. It's hard to imagine what the streets were like in New York City back then with the congestion of different types of vehicles. Olmsted and Vox had this idea that there should be different paths for people who are walking, people who are riding. And it created this sense of safety, security, and you could kind of just sort of go, you know, oh, I'm free. I'm not going to get run over by a out of the out of control wagon or, you know, people aren't, you know, there's, it's just a different vibe and a different sense of feeling. I also think, though, that lungs, when you think about the organ, what lungs do is that they filter out harmful particles. And the park was like that in a sense, even though it opened up to all kinds of people. And there were certainly, you know, what they called, um, you know, vagrants at the time. There were certainly unsavory characters in the park. There was a lot of space there. Everybody had their own kind of area. There was no crowding to the point where it was like the city where you were jostling on the sidewalk. People weren't being filtered out, but the impurities of urban life, the smoke, the congestion, the dust on the streets, the dried flakes of manure that would get in your hair as you were walking down 6th Avenue just to go shopping. Um, you didn't have to worry about any of that. You know, another thing is this notion of personal space, because yes, there were the grand mansions for the elite. We know about that. But also townhouses and more modest homes for average middle class New Yorkers, even though they were rather large, they were also very cramped spaces when you had large families and if you had any domestic staff. So the idea of being out in the open was a place where you could be a little bit more free. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And think about the people, anybody who had the money to leave the city in the summer did so. It was just too suffocatingly hot. And there was also a whole social thing about going someplace, whether it would be Newport or Long Branch or some of the other uh, resorts that developed along the seashores of the eastern seaboard. But now you could stay in the city. You could get that fresh air, the breeze, the country life. You didn't have to go away, but you could experience it as well. Now, some of the monuments and architectural features of the park from the Gilded Age are actually still there if we know where to look and where to look for them. Could you share what we can see of the Gilded Age today that Gilded Age New Yorkers saw? Oh, well, certainly the crowning achievement of Central Park, um, the gathering place as Olmsted and Vox wanted it to be, would be Bethesda Terrace and Bethesda Fountain and the mall. So that's where we all congregate today. I mean, the mall is just such a lovely place to walk down. And in the Gilded Age, it was as well. People came there, they uh, took in the air, they cooled themselves off next to the fountain with the beautiful angel of the water statue that went up in 1873. Um, so those features uh, were there then as well as now. Other things were the dairy, which was a, it's a strange idea, but it was a place where people could get fresh milk. Milk at the time was uh, very dangerous to drink before pasteurization. 
Belvedere Castle was there. That was just this sort of fanciful idea of putting a European style castle at the highest point of the park. And it was, you know, really a breathtaking view that people like to go to. Bow Bridge and all of the other arches, those were designed by Olmsted and Vox, and so many of them survive today. Huddlestone Arch is a beautiful one. Um, they're just this, these rustic bridges that made people feel like they were in nature or in a landscaped garden. Uh, the lake was there, and the boat rides that we take today, you could do that then. There was a Venetian-style craft that was there as well. And a little bit later, although it wasn't part of the plan of the park, but by the 1870s, the Central Park Zoo, then known as the Menagerie, uh, opened up. And uh, that was an extremely big attraction as well with lions, tigers. Uh, they had two elephants, one who was a, a little crusty and wasn't very nice to the keepers. Um, but all of the children and adults as well uh, really enjoyed visiting the Menagerie. It's wonderful because so much of what you described is still there yeah. that we can still see today. And with that, Esther and I are going to take a very brief break and we'll be back to continue the story. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I'm here with Esther Crane, and we are talking about the good old summertime where the Gilded Age played. Now, I want to scope out a little bit here and talk about a passion of Gilded Age New Yorkers, which is still a passion of New Yorkers today, and that's sports. So many New Yorkers are obsessed with sports. That is nothing new. It was certainly true during the Gilded Age, but I think it's fascinating to look at a couple of them that people used as pastimes during the summer, including America's national pastime, baseball. And it seems that that actually began in a field near Madison Park down around 23rd Street today. Can you share that story? I was fascinated reading about how baseball began in New York. Yeah, it was um, just a game known as baseball. Guys after work would come to a sandlot that was on the northwestern end of Madison Square Park, um, as it, we call it today. Uh, this was a sort of a desolate area. It was where a lot of the um, streetcar companies would park their cars and their horses. It was kind of the outer edge of the city in the 1840s. And they would throw a ball around. They developed these loose set of rules. And they would play there, and it became very popular. 
So one of these guys, a clerk named Alexander Cartwright, was so taken with the game that he became the person who, who wrote the rules down. This was the first time the rules were written. And he got an actual team together, the New York Knickerbockers. They played their first game in Hoboken. I believe they lost, unfortunately. But the popularity of the game really took New York. And there's some accounts that during the Civil War, Union soldiers from different parts of the, of the country taught it to each other, and that's how the game spread. But it all began in Madison Square Park. I love that. I think we should just go down there and throw a baseball around sort of in honor of the origin of baseball. Yeah, and it, it really, sport teams like the baseball teams that popped up, the professional leagues, they really helped make New York City um, sort of a, a more centralized place. In the Gilded Age, things coalesced and people took pride in their city. And that would be the city of New York and also at the time the city of Brooklyn, which had the trolley dodgers. So these teams actually were a way for New Yorkers to cheer on and support the notion of a city and really a community, right? Exactly. And that's still true today, right? Exactly. It was really the first time that people rallied around New York as this as this great city, this place, this this, you know, oh, I'm not, you know, a German immigrant living on Houston Street. I'm a New Yorker and my team is the the Highlanders, which was the first name for the the Yankees. I think that's really important because that's the, that's the evolution to a new identity. Exactly. It created this identity of being a New Yorker and that's something that the Gilded Age gave us. I think that's really important. Now, one of the great pastimes of the Gilded Age, thanks to the development of Central Park and, and other parks like Riverside, was bicycling. It seems like this was an enormous craze of the Gilded Age. Do you think it's really fair to call it a craze? Oh, and absolutely. How did it start? Well, bicycles were around for a while, but they were very hard to maneuver. They were heavy. It was something that you know some men uh, rode, but it really wasn't a pastime Uh, that people enjoyed, partly because people didn't have the money to buy a bicycle and they didn't have the leisure time to just ride around the city. That all changed in the 1880s with something that was invented called the safety bike. This was a lighter bike. It was easier to maneuver. It had brakes and it was affordable. And once that hit the market, people bought them in droves. And that included women. Women took to cycling, you know, like like nothing ever before. Uh, The older idea in the Gilded Age, in their mother's generation of the 1860s and 1870s, was that women shouldn't move at all. You should sit still. Possibly you you could ride a horse, but that was it. You you, You can't exercise. It's very harmful. And the new woman of the Gilded Age with her bicycle and... Uh, riding around with her bows, uh, sort of just threw that out the window. I'm so glad. Yeah. I think I really need to get rid of those old images, right? There, there were also um, bicycle outfits that were sold by all the big department stores. They looked like regular skirts to me, but apparently they were gay, had a little more give to them. And women bought them, and bicycling became uh, a hugely important movement for the in the idea of the freedom of women. There's a great quote of Edith Wharton's actually when she and her husband bought a townhouse on Park Avenue and her comment was she liked it and chose it because it was near the park for bicycling. Yeah. So we can imagine great. Edith Wharton at one point uh, I'm sure donning some bicycling fashion and riding around the park. It was it was so big that in Brooklyn they had the actual dedicated bike route uh, in the 1890s um, on Ocean Parkway, and New York City, um, the Manhattan side, did not have a dedicated route, 
but there were routes in Central Park and up Riverside Drive from Columbus Circle to uh, where Grant's tomb is, just hugely thronged with bike riders, as it is today. Now, perhaps the greatest draw for New Yorkers, really of, of all economic levels, during the last quarter of the 19th century and into the 20th, was, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, the very great Coney Island. But if we dropped ourselves into Coney Island around that same time as that opening moment that we talked about earlier in Central Park, let's just imagine a beautiful summer day around 1890. So Esther, what would we have seen over at Coney Island? Seen masses of humanity having lowbrow fun. (laughs) That sounds fun. Yeah, doesn't it? Um, Talk about letting loose. Coney Island was the place. I mean, Central Park, you had that personal space, you could relax. But Coney Island really catered to, to those human desires to be entertained, to be thrilled, to feel powerful, to feel alive. That was the place. And it was really quite a phenomenon. You know what's so interesting about that concept of Coney Island? It was almost more than a place. It was more than what was there. It was this feeling. It was this sense of being that it created for people. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And it actually became, it was such a sensation worldwide that writers, visitors would come to Coney Island. Sigmund Freud came to Coney Island to witness what was going on. I want to actually read something by an English writer who I think encapsulates what Coney Island was about. This was published in um, The Cosmopolitan, as the magazine was called, in 1905. Coney Island exists and will go on existing because into all men, gentle and simple, poor and rich, including women, by some mysterious corybantic instinct in their blood has been born a tragic need of coarse excitement, a craving to be taken in by some illusion, however palpable. So following the examples of those old nations, whose place she has so vigorously taken. America has builded herself a palace of illusion and filled it with every species of talented, attractive monster, every misbegotten fantasy of the frenzied nerves, every fantastic marvel of the moonstruck brain, and she has called it Coney Island. Ironic name, a place lonely with rabbits, a spit of sandy beach so near to the simple life of the sea, and watched over by the summer night, strange isle of monsters, preposterous palace of illusion, gigantic parody of pleasure, Coney Island. Oh, I think that's very descriptive. I love a couple things in there. One was the the reference to rabbits, mm. because can you describe that? Yeah, the reference to rabbits has to do with the etymology of the name Coney Island. Nobody's really sure, but the thinking is that it's a sort of a corruption of a Dutch word for rabbit, which was Koenig, I believe. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I don't speak Dutch, but Koenig is the way it's sort of phonetically pronounced. And at one point, Coney Island actually was an island, right? Yeah, it was an island. There were other barrier islands um, sticking out there, and it was all part of the early colony of Gravesend. And um, I've read accounts of, you know, cows grazing along the beach, is, you know, kind of amazing. And then, you know, centuries later, it uh, became a place for people. You could say that they were grazing as well, just looking at the attractions, experiencing the delights, and uh, just reveling in the seashore. Now, it started off as actually a fairly fashionable area, right? But then it sort of grew. Can you talk about how it evolved? Yeah, it's all, again, due to transportation. The railroad trains came in, 
these heads of these railroads realized that if they created seaside destinations at the end of the line, uh, they would make a killing. And they did. This is post-Civil War. New Yorkers had money. Anybody who was wealthy or upper middle class could stay at one of the tamer, more family-oriented uh, hotels um, in Brighton Beach. There was the Brighton Beach Hotel, the Oriental, and the Manhattan Beach Hotel. These were these great Victorian structures that had restaurants and bands and fireworks and everything that a you know merchant class would find delightful. And then on the other end of Coney Island, they went for the tawdry and the lowbrow. And that really brought out the crowds of all, all different um, classes in New York City, but especially working class people, uh, working class girls for you know just a couple of nickels. They would take the ferry from 23rd Street, catch the train in Brooklyn and be on the seashore in an hour. Now, talking about the sense of fantasy that has always been part of Coney Island, I suppose, I want to ask you about another hotel that was in the Coney Island section. That was the Elephant Hotel. Can you describe that for listeners? Because I think they're going to be astonished. This was like a nine-story hotel shaped like an elephant. And that when when the hotel went up in the 1880s, that really solidified that Coney Island was going to be a place of fantasy and fun and revelry and just, you know, it wasn't going to conform to the ideals of the era. It was just this place where you could, you could, your imagination just went wild. And all of the uh, theme park developers, of course, took that cue and built even gaudier, grander, crazier kinds of things to lure people in. Now, can you talk a little bit about those three parks? We had Steeplechase, Luna Park, and then Dreamland. Dreamland. Yeah. Right. Can you talk about a little bit about each one of those to give listeners an idea of what they were? So Steeplechase Park, that was the first one after Sea Lion Park, took its name from the Brighton Beach racetrack just down the, the beach a little ways. And Steeplechase uh, was extremely popular. It was enclosed. You paid, I think, uh, 25 cents for the shot at 25 rides. Uh, They had a Venetian gondola, a Wild West show, a model Eiffel Tower, a model Big Ben, uh, disaster spectacles, which is something that all of the parks eventually had where they would uh, reenact some horrible disaster like the, the flood of Galveston. And people would watch it. It was like early reality TV uh, they would reenact uh, the burning of a tenement and hire actors to play the firefighters and the poor people stuck on the fire escapes, which was a really crazy idea, but very popular. And they had the infamous trip to the moon ride, which then I believe Luna Park picked up. Now, what happened to these parks? How did they disappear? One was burned down. Another one closed because of the owners were in debt. I think that they just overspent and taste changed. I think that the idea of these gaudy spectacles uh, just sort of fell out of fashion. And Steeplechase Park is the one that actually lasted the longest and I think didn't get knocked down until the 1960s. So there was the shell of Steeplechase Park uh, along the boardwalk. Do you have any firsthand accounts of Coney Island? I love you have brought some of those uh, with you before, and I would love if you have any today I to do. share with that. <laughs> um, I mentioned that working working people really loved Coney Island, and that would be especially true for working girls. It was perfectly fine for a couple of female friends to go out there unescorted by bows, which was a big thing in the Gilded Age, a big step toward freedom and equality. And I have an account of a, a German uh, nurse girl, as she called herself. She was a servant in a rich family's house on Riverside Drive. She was the nursemaid who took care of the young children. 
But in her spare time, she loved going to Coney Island, and this is what she had to say about it. I have a great many friends in New York, and I enjoy my outings with them. We go to North Beach or Glen Island or Rockaway or Coney Island. If we go on a boat, we dance all the way there and all the way back, and we dance nearly all the time we are there. I like Coney Island best of all. It is a wonderful and beautiful place. I took a German friend, a girl who had just come out, down there last week, and when we had been on the razzle-dazzle, the loop-the-loop, and down in the coal mine and all over the Bowery, and up in the tower and everywhere else, I asked how she liked it. She said, Ach, it is just like what I see when I dream of heaven. That's a lovely account, Isn't right? <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? Now, Coney Island also, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, Coney Island also kind of got a reputation, and it was sometimes called the Sodom of the Sea. Yeah. But some thought that it was kind of a romantic place, too, right? There was always the possibility of meeting the perfect beau or or seeing a beautiful girl on the Ferris wheel or whatever. Do you think that characterization that I just gave is a little harsh? I do. Do you think there was some romance that could have happened there and I, probably did? I think it was an extremely romantic place. I mean, what is romance but just the the thrill of being alive and just beauty and possibilities and fantasy and imagination? There's also a lot of accounts of people sneaking little romantic moments when they were on these rides. Let's say you're going through the razzle-dazzle. You could grab on to your romantic interest and have that little moment, steal that moment of freedom. Um, you're on the loop-de-loop -loop and you're afraid. You could hold each other. Nobody was going to criticize you. It's just something that we take for granted that we can touch each other, our romantic partners in the world today, and nobody bats an eye. But back then, that was pretty racy stuff. I agree. And we that that came up in a recent show that I that I just did is just how divided the sexes were at the, the time. Oh, yeah. And to be able to do that and to even grab a wrist or something was very exciting. I and to think about um, the kind of clothing you were wearing when you were at the seashore. I mean, the idea of bathing suits, which we would laugh at today, these 1890 kind of bathing outfits that the department stores sold, they look very fuddy-duddy to us. But at the time, they were showing ankles. They were showing wrists. They were. It was very risque. Why well, it was almost being naked? It almost <laughs> was, and it was because Coney Island was this just this aberration in the middle of the sort of these Victorian moors that people had. Um, you were allowed to wear them, and it was okay. Now, really interestingly, um, we were chatting the other day, and you shared with me that there were actually some other amusement parks in the city that are just nearly forgotten today. Can you share a little bit about a couple of those that you would like to share with listeners that you thought are interesting? Absolutely. I think that sometimes the developers might have thought that they were building the new Coney Island, but they really just became sort of local little Coney Islands that people who couldn't get out to Coney Island could enjoy and take advantage of. Uh, one of the biggest ones was the Fort George Amusement Park. That would be at the very tip of Upper Manhattan. And it was at the end of the Third Avenue elevated train or railroad line. And the developers built it the same way that the developers of Coney Island built their parks at the end of the railroad. And it became a destination for people. They had three roller coasters, a little mini racetrack, beer gardens, which was hugely popular, a place to refresh yourself on a cool day in New York City in the Gilded Age. They were for working class families. There were lights, 
shows, vaudeville, um, piers that you could walk out on and catch the breeze. Um, there was another one in North Beach, which was built by the Steinway family. They had their factory out in Astoria, Queens, and they built an amusement park uh, for the what they called the healthful enjoyment of their working class families that worked there. There was another one that I personally wish I could have visited called Golden City, and that was in Canarsie, which is about as far away as it was to get to Coney Island. And they had a ride that I just find um, fascinating. It was called uh, the Human Laundry. And it was essentially, uh, you went inside this bucket-shaped contraption, you spun around like a laundry machine, you got really wet, you were thrust out into the open air into the sea breeze off of Jamaica Bay to dry off, and then you were hurled down a chute, just like a piece of laundry. Isn't that great? I think they should bring that back. I, I, I that... think that is a business opportunity for some amusement park developer, right? I mean, I would love it. That would be my ideal job would be like the dreamer upper of amusement um, rides in the Gilded Age. Because that one, can, what was that be like? Can you imagine? Just spit out at the end like a like a sock. Now, Esther, of all the places that we've talked about today, we've talked about Central Park and Coney Island. Are there any of those places that you wander around today where you can really get a sense of what you feel the Gilded Age on a summer day might have been like? I think that all of them give you a taste of the Gilded Age. Uh, Central Park would be a very just sort of a typical Gilded Age place, and there would be lovely people and carriages and maybe a few shifty types to, you know, around, but it was generally very safe and very clean and very lovely. Uh, I would love to take a time machine and go back and witness it. Coney Island would be your sort of exception to the Gilded Age rule in a way because it was so free and risque and imaginative and down and dirty which would appeal to people's, you know, instincts very well. Uh, but personally, what I would, I would love to go back to would be the High Bridge, which was the, uh, it's the oldest bridge in New York City. It was built uh, to bring Croton, upstate Croton water down to the lower city. It was completed in 1848. And in, in the 1860s, they built a walkway on it. And it became a very popular place in upper Manhattan, for people that lived in the area to stroll and promenade. You had these beautiful breezes that were coming you know, off the um, Harlem River, and it was high up, the high bridge, of course. So you had these cliffs that you were looking at, I mean, not real cliffs, but Manhattan-type cliffs, looking over into Harlem um, and across into the Bronx. And I would love to be on that bridge and just take in this, the city as a whole from the highest point uh, that you could at the time. I think people forget that also Manhattan slopes down, right? Yes. From the, the tip of the island up in the Bronx all the way down. It's actually sort of a slope. So you really would have gotten a fantastic view up there. Is there any of that left? Can we get any sense of that yes. for your perfect summer day? You can. You can still you can walk out there. It's a pedestrian-only bridge, although I think bikes are allowed, but there's no cars. It's very safe. And you really get the scope of New York, and you feel those breezes, and you can just imagine... Uh, somebody weighed down with the heavy clothing of the era and uh, her umbrella over her head because you didn't want to get any sun, of course. That would be not uh, a good look in the in the Gilded Age. You wanted to stay as, you know, your skin as fair as possible. And I think that you would really get a sense of what it was like back then. And you can go out on it today and imagine the people in the boats, the steam sh the, the steamers that would go up and take people on excursions for the day 
uh, that uh, are really no longer there. And just we kind of take you back. Oh, Esther, it has been such a pleasure to have you back on the show today. Will you come back again, please? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. I love, you know, we could talk about this stuff all day. I know. And there is no shortage of things that we can find um, to talk about. But I was so excited to do a show with you about how the rest of the Gilded Age played and what they did and where they found a little bit of excitement and refuge. And I think we've covered that today. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And to my listeners, please follow Esther's extraordinary website, Ephemeral New York at ephemeralnewyork.com and watch for announcements of her tours and her talks. And don't miss Esther and my earlier episode, episode 10, Invisible Magician domestic servants in Gilded Age New York. And thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite my listeners to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support directly helps with all the costs of creating the show from research to studio rentals. I couldn't do it without you. Any enormous thank you to my patrons and i'll see you soon what's life without a little glint of gold <laughs>